making your limited training budget go further. This week, we're talking about EP training priorities. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Why do we train? And what do we hope we're going to get out of it? A new job, a new skill set, uh, an edge over the competition. Big questions this week. And, you know, the EP professional, it, it, they have a limited budget. And you've got to make smart decisions. So how can we assess a good trainer from a bad trainer, a relevant course from an irrelevant course? And then how can we present it? You know, what should feature on your CV for what occasion? I'm here with John Moss. And uh, we're going to be talking with Sean Colsey a, a, a little bit later. It's a it's a big topic, but it's one that I don't think will ever go away. Uh, what do you think, John? Oh, I love this. It's so juicy. There's so much in there. I mean, look, even in that short intro, the amount of things that you hit upon there, you know, where are you spending your money? Is that a good use of your money? What's the purpose? It, 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 there's so many aspects of this that we can look at and i'm really interested to hear what somebody who's totally uh submerged inside of the whole training environment and understands it really well i'm really looking forward to hear and what sean has got to say about that because because really what you want to do and what we're going to do with sean is look under the hood uh, see how you know the trainer looks at training because, you know, is there a problem, you know, we're going, to, we're going to be discussing this, but is there a problem that many people are going on courses that are entertaining, but may not be right for their geography? So, you know, I, I guess we're going to look at firearms training in the UK, not, not a whole lot of use unless you're perhaps um, in the public sector, but in, in the States, you know, quite, quite useful. But then again, is it unfair to, you know, talk bad uh, in any way about these more interesting courses because they keep people engaged don't they they're they are motivational yeah there's nothing wrong with an interesting course and it is very easy to fall into the trap of questioning every module on a course and saying well does this need to be here does it need to be presented in such a way but training providers are a business it's it's an economy and you know there's only so many dollars every year apportioned to training and obviously these providers are in a competitive business and they want to make money they're up against other rival training providers and everybody's got their own take on the best way to position their company and market their business and you know I've got no issues with a with a course being interesting as well as functional, as well as giving you the information and the training and the skills that you need to do the job. And and it might not be useful now for some of these things, but but in the future, who knows? You know, <laughs> pandemic uh, resilience training might have been in someone's course, and they were like, ah, it's not going to be useful. Yet, uh, maybe that gave somebody the edge this uh, this time. I'm, I'm looking ahead. You know, what if your billionaire principal decides to go to space, right? That sounds uh, a little silly uh, to our ears. Oh, but but wait, 
uh, Jeff Bezos is going to space. So, you know, uh, learning about how to keep perhaps a principle safe in that environment, as ludicrous as it sort of sounds, could come in handy. So, so maybe, maybe who are we to judge? Yeah, I, I don't know how many training providers will see rushing out to uh, incorporate that into their courses, but you never know, do you? And like you say, we, we do need to look forward as well as towards the establishment. And that's one of my biggest issues with training, really, is that recently in the growth of security training companies in the last 15 years or so, a, a lot of these companies are just replicas of another company that they saw that was doing well. And in many cases, that was their inspiration for creating their company, was just to mimic what they've seen somebody else do, cut a little bit here and a little bit there, and undercut their competitor with a lower-priced training course that ticks all of the boxes. And when you plan your training course either around the bare minimum criteria or just copying what somebody else is doing, then there's nothing original in that. And there's very little of interest in that. And so, yeah, we we need to look to the future as well. We also need to ask ourselves, what will the protector of tomorrow need to know? Now, 15 years ago, when all of these, these courses that would give you the bare minimum training qualification to operate in the industry sprung up, we weren't necessarily imagining that the protector of what is now today would already be as multifaceted as what they are. I mean, who was doing cybersecurity training for the protector 15 years ago? I'm sure there was somebody out there, but but not too many, right? No, no. And that um, not being afraid to do a course is uh, is really, really important. But... That does give a flavor of perhaps where we're going to go with Sean today in that there there are courses that you do for you and there's courses that you do because it ticks a box. And then there's that gray area in between because let's be honest, we're all creatures of habit and most of us do like certificates and uh, gold stars and all that, right? It, it, It feels nice, especially now we're not in the school structure to receive a certificate says, right, progress. I like it. And fair dues. I, I, I give out uh, attendance certificates as well for these events. But how do you market it? How do you put it on a CV? Is it right to put 100 small courses on your CV? I think that says you haven't tailored it to the uh, job. And yet we do see CVs, even though you know, we, we, we're not giving out jobs. We do see these CVs and, and we do advise tailor it. So I think keep the keep the training up, keep the diversity of the training up, but keep it in, in your pocket and, and get ready to tailor it to a specific task. Would, would that work, John? Yeah, but I mean, you're also moving into another area now, which we're not really covering when we speak about training, but the CV and it and it's massively important. And you could even broaden that out a bit more into how you present yourself generally when approaching a new employer, a a vacant position. And there's lots of things to consider there. And, you know, very very basic terms, when you're applying for a job, no matter how many courses you've done, 
you need to tailor your CV, your resume to that job, to that position. And that means pushing the most relevant training and qualifications up to the top and in the eye and lowering or eliminating altogether the qualifications and training which weren't necessary or, or, or don't support the skills required for that position because otherwise you're just going to dilute the efficacy of that CV or resume. No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I remember when I was in the civil service, there was almost a, a bit of a joke. If, if you have a PhD, don't tell anyone. Because the going emphasis in the civil service is to be a generalist, unless you're in the science service or something like that. And the moment you step out of line and say, I'm a specialist with a PhD, everyone would say, don't talk about it. Right. And 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 that's just tailoring. That's know your audience. Um, It's not rocket science. And I know we can't hope to solve that here, but but I think the two topics are intertwined. So I'm going to get into that with Sean, definitely. Yeah, I've got this image now of you as Sir Humphrey Appleby. I, I've, I've seen Yes Minister. <laughs> and it's true. It is so true. It is amazing how true it is. And, um, and it still stands up to today, right? Very little to do with what we're talking about here, but what a great show. And if anybody, uh, if it's new to anyone, I definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, please do. It's nice and genteel. So it's good fun for all the family. But yeah, let's let's get into it then. Training putting your limited resources to get the most uh, return uh, with Sean Colsey, Operations Director at Minerva Elite. Great friend of the BBA, great friend of the Circuit Magazine. And uh, of course, we've known him uh, a long time too. So very much looking forward to hearing from Sean. And now let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit Magazine. REP professionals making smart training choices. We're here with Sean Colsey, Chief Operations Officer for Minerva Elite. I'm also here with Sean West. And today we're looking at the subject of effective training. Everyone is doing it, but, you know, to what extent do we really understand the decision-making process behind it? And uh, is there anything we can do better? Uh, It's great to have you on, Sean. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks very much. Uh, just just to make sure I don't take somebody else's uh, position, I'm the ops director rather than the the COO. Ah, uh, uh, a shorthand. I've done a shorthand with that. Okay, okay, perfect. Um, but yeah, great. Yeah, looking forward to uh, participating today. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. We've got our three quick fire questions. I I, I, I use them to frame the debate within the topic of training and development, learning and development. What's your biggest gripe with the industry as it stands? What sort of problem do you think most needs solving? I think one of my issues really is when we, we come across candidates, there's a varying uh, level of ability and training uh, within the training organisations. So some will uh, set up training organisations on the back of them being certain regiments, et cetera, et cetera, but not necessarily having the depth of experience in terms of the training delivery and experience in delivering that training. Others are very, very good. And I think for us, when we're networking around the circuit, it's about highlighting those organizations that are delivering 
you know, the best training options that are out there mm. and deliver quality. I think part of it, you may lead to it later on, is that some organizations put in what seem to be the sexy modules, but actually, what are they worth on the circuit in real terms? You know, if you're looking in the UK, for example, just quickly to pick up a point is how much firearms training should you be doing? It's great to get out and do some firearms packages and learn how to use different weapon systems. But if you're operating in the UK, is that ever going to be a reality? No, it's not. So are you paying for a level of training, which is great to do, but in reality, you're never going to be able to deploy with it unless you're going to go into a hostile environment. Uh, understood. No, of course. Um, great example there. Um, but but you personally then, um, the subject of training, you're a prolific trainer, you're a great friend of the industry. Where does that passion for training come from? I, I think personally, it's because... Um, coming from a military background, there are a lot of military colleagues that when we enter into the uh, civilian world and start working on the circuit, there's a lot of us that have the same skills from a military background. Um, there are certain units that you work with. So, for example, when I first got onto the circuit, there were a couple of people from, uh, obviously from the, the, the SAS but from the Parachute Regiment and uh, the Royal Marines, they had a different type of skill set. And so for me personally, it's about, that's what I want to do now. I want to be have some longevity in this industry. So what I'm going to have to do now is to at least get on the, on the same level as these guys and understand exactly what they're doing. So I thought, right, I've done my basic CP course and then decided, well, that for me has just given me an insight it's given me a, a license. What I now need to do is to maximize my training potential and investment to be able to pursue a long-term career in this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and do surveillance course. I'm going to do a cyber course. I'm going to do, uh, yes, I'm going to do a firearms course uh, because I don't know where it's going to take me around the world, but I'm going to do a, an advanced driving course. So everybody's doing a firearms course. Everybody's doing a surveillance course. Everybody's doing a cyber course. What I'm going to do is make something different. And I went into risk management um, because some of the venues that I was working in, it was easier to communicate with some of the, the management teams within those venues if you have a management uh, risk management qualification. So I did a security and risk management qualification. I then did a, an event project management qualification at master's level. I then went and did um, a strategic man management and leadership qualification at master's level. Again, it's trying to make sure that you understand a broader depth of what's happening within the industry. And as I get older, I seem to be managing more teams. I'm still operational on the ground, but I'm managing more teams. So not being an expert in everything, why shouldn't I go out and find out who's delivering? Uh, what's the quality of the training? Can I get a qualification in that? And can I pick up some more valuable learning and experience, which I can then pass on to my team leaders below me to help them develop as well? So I'm very much about not just developing myself as an individual, but also throughout my teams so that everybody start to pick up some of the ideas that are, and some of the courses that I've been through. And so not that anyone would be fully uninitiated in the topic of training, because, of course, they'll all have been through some sort of training. But but those 
on the other side of the curtain, you know, obviously you train people, you provide, uh, you know, training to people. And you mentioned before, obviously, people coming in at different levels. Um, our third wonderful quickfire question is, you know, what would you like the people on the other side of the fence to know? The, the people taking courses that perhaps don't know the workings behind the curtain. Uh, some of what I've said already is that, you know, once you've been through in the UK, the SIA system, and you've passed your CP course or whatever it is, um, that's the basic. That's, that gets you onto the ladder. So that gives you a license that then starts you off. What you'll quickly, if you've got any intelligence about you whatsoever, by quickly looking around within the industry and on the circuit is you'll find out that there are people there who have developed themselves by taking each and every one of those modules to another level. So they've then pursued, if they want a career in surveillance, They've gone along and not just thought, right, I've passed one course that sometimes lasts two weeks maximum, some less than that if they're unscrupulous companies, um, that, you know, don't believe that you're an expert as soon as you pass that course. I came out of that course thinking, there's so much more I need to learn now. This has just opened up my mind as to what else I want to do. So it's given me that basic, it was almost like a basic introduction. And it's a bit like for us in the military, it's given me my basic training. Now I need to find out what company I'm going to go into and start my specialist training to become a better soldier. Well, if I have that attitude in the, in the military, then I'm going to have the same attitude as a civilian. How am I going to be a better close protection expert? Where am I going to specialize? The, the, the thing that sort of uh, frustrates me is that, um, you know, individuals do one course like the basic SIA course and think that's it. They're the experts and they can go off and do everything then. And you're quickly exposed. Uh, and, and a lot of it, I think, depends on the training providers. Um, there's a lot of training providers out there that, um, I, I'm going to say it, they just want to make money. They're not really worried about the training that they give. So what's also useful is things like the BBA. I find that the BBA really, really useful. The new application that they've got I'm on that every day. Uh, and I'm on that every day because as well as being a training provider, as well as being a close protection officer, et cetera, et cetera, I keep looking on that network and I'm looking at all the other guys and girls that are talking about training providers. They're all asking each other. So they're all networking. So they're trying to find out and get feedback about training provision, whether that be they're new and they want to get into the industry or they're looking to specialize in, in a certain area. And I know Sean's here on the uh, on the group with us, but I think that is an absolutely fantastic resource. There's never been anything like it that we've seen in the UK. And that's why if you want to find out anything and you're just listening to this podcast, you know, I have no investment in the BBA other than I'm a member, I'm a partner with them. Um, but get on there and have a look. Have a look. It's not just about uh, jobs. There's plenty of jobs that come up on the app. But in terms of training, which is what we're talking about, you'll get honest feedback from operators who have been on different courses to tell you what's the latest trend, what's the latest company to go to, who to stay away from in their opinion, et cetera, et cetera. Hi, Sean. Uh, great recommendation of the app there. Thank you. Um, going back to training, there's, there's so many training providers out there, so many different courses. Do, do you find a problem with operators that, I don't know, opt to go on sexy courses over practical courses or, or do you think that's a bit of an urban myth 
Uh, in my opinion, I think it is. I don't think it's an urban myth. I think um, there's a lot of people successfully branding their organisations and it, and having glossy websites and uh, um, selling all the sexy courses. I think you've got to really look down it, deep into it and decide uh, what are you going to get out from that. You know, a lot of these courses lot cost a lot of money. What's the practical application of that in the real world? So I can go off and do a, a firearms course. I can do that every week. I might be doing that if my decision to do that is because at some point I'm going to go into a hostile environment and I want to keep up with my, my skills and don't want any skill fade. Great. That's fine. But if I've been recommended to do a firearms course and I think, um, you know, one of the things is if, if you're not ex-military, generally in the UK, those that do firearms courses get deployed in firearms operations are ex-military or ex-police. So it's just a consider. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's a really sexy course. Everybody wants to do firearms, for example. But are you ever going to be able to to use that in a real setting? Yeah, I think I think it depends where you are. Also in your career, if you're new and starting out, and I think I've always set my career where I've I've always enjoyed doing training, but I, I broke it down into doing almost the hard skill courses, which you need you know to be operational. Whether that be you know a driving course, you know, maintaining the first aid training, th things that would be perishable. Yeah. But I've also had sort of background courses that's future planning for my career. Um, I think you mentioned doing risk management courses. So whilst I've been doing hard skill courses and, you know, refreshing one or two every year, in the background, I've been always planning for my, you know, the future when, you know, when I'm in my later stages of the career and you're no longer frontline man on the shoulder of your principal, you need to be thinking, you know, it's a, it's a short-term career path if you're going to just stay. Yeah. As a front bodyguard, you need to be thinking, you know, getting the ticks in the box to become a consultant, security manager, along them lines. So I think you need to look at your training in a couple of different elements with a couple of different directions, which you can, you know, because different opportunities can come up at different parts of your career. So you need to be ready to take them opportunities and not to be afraid to veer off onto another career path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I totally agree with that. And I think what you're saying about longevity is that, you know, we all have a mortality. So we're all going to get, depending on what clients we're working with. Um, you know, if you're working with young athletes, for example, the reality is at some point you're going to look older than them. And is it the right fit? Now, they may just change you just because you're not the right fit, the right look anymore. So where do you go? So what you're saying about having those background qualifications and courses and things like that there, either you're doing it you know, behind the scenes, or you've got them planned out is a way to go if you're looking to stay in, in the uh, industry long term, because most people would want to move off, off the ground and move into some sort of management position. Well, those risk management, the strategic management sort of uh, areas uh, and qualifications are then going to be more useful than your, your, your advanced driving and your firearms. Because, because Sean, um, isn't it about utility, right? And we've all seen the people with their CVs that are uh, pages long, full of course one, two, three, five, a hundred. Um, shouldn't, shouldn't we, it, well, we can look at that and say, you know, well done, lots of training, but many employers might look at that and say, mm, they're not being specific enough to the application. So, so can we divide training into things that are going to really pop on a CV and get you work? And things that they're for you as a person. And, and, and you should keep that 
more or less to yourself and and unless it's tailored uh, because i'd be interested in you you know thinking what's coming down the pipeline that you think employers are going to actually want because at the end of the day you, you do see operators even in our community that will say uh i have everything i mean the skill is to tailor it obviously but what what's coming down the pipeline that you think employers are going to really want so i think there's two things there really Dylan. um the, the the first point you make is about your cv you know, be clear about what you're sending out on your CV. What what job are you applying for? So therefore, what courses that you've done should be tailored to that job, to that task? If I'm going to apply for a job with Sean, I want to know what the job is. As soon as he tells me what the job is, my CV gets tailored to that job. I'll use some of the language. I'll use some of the skills, some of the training that I've uh, undertaken to apply for that particular job because as a busy operational manager, all he's going to look for is a quick scan through that CV and look for the things that are pertinent to him and that job. So I think that's the first point. I think the second point in terms of development is that, you know, there is a trend in the UK in particular about academic qualifications. So as well as having all of these sexy courses, your driving, your, your firearms, cyber, and academic qualifications seem to be the two main themes in the UK at the moment. The, the easiest way to attack our principles nowadays and bring down you know, a lot of things around them is by uh, controlling their infrastructure. So if you can take out their communication systems, if they're on a boat somewhere, then you've got a stranded uh, boat. You know, how, how do you protect them then? You might have loads of manpower, but you can't actually move that boat. So how do we, put a shield around that boat, for example, to make sure that nobody can hack into it and close it down or extract data from it. Um, you know, all those sorts of things. With all these trading courses and different providers that we've spoken about, do you think we need more or less regulation um, in the trading industry about surrounding what training we do and why in the, in the CP sector? That's a, that's a difficult one. I, I, I I like the regulation that we have around some of the training environments because it sets a standard. Um, what's key for me is who sets standards, who's involved in that process at the beginning. So um, there's always going to be debate around, you know, sector experts and things like that. Um, but I think my answer to that, Sean, is yes, if they have a, a deep and ingrained understanding about what that qualification is, the training process and the outcomes and how that outcome matches to the reality of the job that we undertake. Um, there's gonna be uh, one of the debates in the UK that's going on now is about physical intervention for close protection officers. Now, I've heard a lot of people talking about, well, let's just transfer the door supervisors package into the close protection package and we'll just do that physical intervention system. Well, it doesn't apply to our job. You know, it's not practical. When are we gonna be stood around arresting and restraining people as a lone PPO? It's not realistic. I think, I think it's good to see new elements come into the training of, of a bodyguard, what's required and the SIA looking to bring new things in, but you're right, you know, it needs constant review and it's got to be applicable to what we do and relevant it can't be something that's that's not relevant because it just takes you away from your core focus and it, it almost makes a mockery of 
what you're trying to do. I think an example of what you're trying to achieve is probably where in the UK in particular, the SAA started the SIA set a standard for first aid at work being the basic medical qualification. Well, the industry then decided it was it needed to be elevated. So whatever name you give it, you know, first person on scene or some of the other medical qualifications that we get, it was advanced. And I think in the industry now, everybody looks at it. I mean, when they're looking at CVs, you know, we're looking for that advanced medical standard rather than just the, uh, the basic first aid at work. Yeah, I think certainly when I'm viewing people's CVs, and it goes back to something Pelham said, you'll have people who will send CVs for rules and they'll have, you know, a hundred different qualifications on there. And you might get CVs from another person who may only have three or four, but they are, you know, good, yeah. strong, reputable courses. And what do you go for? I mean, I've always looked to, whenever I do training, I like the research the trainer provider. I like to look at, you know, their background, the background of the instructors. And you get training providers who have set up a company and they just train. They're not operational. I always like to have my instructors who have been ideally still current, currently operational in the industry. So they can give you real scenarios from, you know, deliver from a real time experience. No, no, it's, it's a good point. You know, um, Sean, you need to be sure that the, the, the instructor knows what they're doing. There's a common com complaint around business schools that some business school uh, lecturers were never in business and have no ties to business apart from their academic work. Um, and, and it must be difficult for the EPO to make sense of this because they know they need to do something. Some of them come out for, of the services with a lump sum and they want to spend it wisely. Some don't, right? By some do, and they want to spend it wisely. So, so, so that's why this as a topic for our podcast this week is, is kind of important. Um, Sean, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be interested in, in your take on how they make sense of it when, not, not so much in the UK, but in the US, there are different schools that may or may not get along and that basically have a, a, a very strong alumni network. You know, how, how is the EPO to make sense of what to do? Why is this still an issue today? It's not so much, oh, should they do the shooting or the evasive driving course or, or whatever? It, it, it's also about how do they actually understand the different schools out there and, and the merits of them? In university system, they could just say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's a master's level or that's a degree level or whatever. Why, why do we still have this problem with the schools? Um, I think that it, it's a similar situation in the UK um, because you've got training providers. Um, I think going back, as an example, in the UK, most of these training providers are linked to academic institutions. So they've got to be registered with those institutions to be able to deliver a, a standard qualification. So if it's a recognised qualification then it'll be up on the, the framework somewhere. And as a provider, you have to prove that you have all the systems in place, the equipment, the training venue, et cetera, to be able to deliver that. Um, you are then assessed, some regularly, some not so regularly, but people will come out, sector experts will come out to your organization and view the training in practice. They'll also look at your paperwork and your qualifications and your examinations and everything that's been set. The difficulty with the US, I think, is that each and, if, each and every state has a different setup. 
And so there are different regulations. In the UK, we're national. So if we're looking at the SIA qualification, it's national. Whatever you do that in the UK, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, it's going to be the same qualification, meets the same specific modules, and you have to deliver each to that, and you'll be checked on that. In the, in the States, it's going to be different because a different state will have a different requirement. Um, and that really, I don't have the answer for you because that makes it much more difficult in the US for you to start to pick out which are the better providers. And uh, understandably, there are going to be certain organizations that have a great alumni that attract a lot of candidates to it. What I would start to look at is, in terms of my assessment of that organization then, is how much work do those operators get once they leave the training? So there's a lot of uh, communication and, and traffic around how good the courses are, how good the instructors are, how friendly they are, how tough they are, how knowledgeable they are, etc. So once I've completed my training, I'm into the next phase now. The next phase is getting work. So how much work have those operators actually got from coming out of those different academies? And so that would be an, a good analysis to, to try and uh, drag some uh, information from and some stats because somebody might be the best alumni, have the best feedback for training, and um, it's warranted. You know, they should be getting that. But the reality is the industry doesn't take people from that organization, or there's something that's missing from that organization, or there's a way of training that, as an individual, I think is absolutely fantastic. But if I go to an operations uh, person like Sean in the UK, he might think, well, that... Uh, that system doesn't work for us. So the way you've been trained is incorrect. So it's about trying to find out how many people actually get work from that as well, I think. I think that's one, one way of doing your research is try and network with those post-course. How many of you actually got work? What's the level of work that you've got? In the UK, I know loads of um, guys who have done close protection courses, but rarely or if ever worked as a close protection officer. They've worked festivals. They've worked clubs and pubs, and they wear a, door, uh, wear a close protection license, but they've not gone into CP. And there are a number of training providers in the UK that have a good reputation about putting them through the course, but the reality is they, they don't get selected for tasks. So that's, that's one way of doing it. I think going back as well, um, Pelham's question, how do you make sense of these different training providers and which one to go with? I think, as we were discussing earlier, you know, joining independent organizations such as the British Bodyguard Association or the North American Bodyguard Association, depending on which region you're from, it's a great place to ask, ask these questions. You know, I'm looking to do a course with training provider A or training provider B. You know, you can touch base with them yourself, you know, engage yourself, what the response is like from them. Um, what do you think? The Just on that, if I can jump in there, Sean, sorry to cut across you, but if you look at North American body Guard Association and the uh, and the BBA. What's unique about them is they're not training providers. So they have no vested interest. So what they'll do is they'll pass information and their members will pass, pass information through and be honest about it because they've got, they, they, get, they get nothing from it. They're trying to help the whole community rather than just trying to push a provider here or push a provider here. Yeah, they have training providers but honest feedback will come in. They're not a training provider themselves. And that's where it's failed in the UK previously has been that 
organizations and set themselves up as a member organization, but they got a training arm and everything they do is pushed through that training arm. And so it doesn't work then. And you quickly see them fade. And that's what I think is uh, unique about the, the, the collaboration we've got in the UK and across over in North America. Yeah, I think any training you do, you know, you should be looking for a recommendation from people who have done the course in your sector, from in your network, and taking referrals from them and putting what you get from them together with the response you get from the training provider. What's your first response like when you touch base with them? Are they professional? The instructors have good backgrounds? You know, and you make an informed decision. But I know I always look any training that's relevant for me. I, you know, I set a career development plan, and I think, I'd advise everybody to do that when you're getting into the CP sector. Set yourself a plan. As you mentioned earlier, Sean, you do your CP course. That is purely the basics. You, you don't actually learn your trade till you start doing the job. And then I think once you're learning your role, then you can look at, right, this is the area I need training in. I need to upskill my, it could be my first aid because things have moved on since then. But if you don't have a plan, I think, and you don't have a focus, sometimes you forget and you just get carried away, swept away with your busy life your work, whatever it may be. And then when a vacancy comes up in three, four, five years time, you realize I don't have that tick in the box. I can't get that. So as long as you've got a plan in place and you, you know, whilst working, you chip away at it, you may not be able to do everything in one go because you're so busy and you know life has a funny way of taking you in a different direction. But as long as you have a plan and be prepared to down test and adjust that plan as things happen, I don't think you'll go far. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think if you haven't got a plan in place, um, then all you'll be doing is working, you'll be firefighting and then somebody will do a course and you'll think, well, I best do that course. You do the course, you think, I haven't got a lot out of that. I spent a lot of money. It wasn't really interesting for me. Um, and then that will turn you a little bit negative in terms of training and development. So having a plan in place is essential, really, regardless of where you are within the industry, whether you're starting or with your X amount of years in, it's about where you want to go with that. Like going back to Pelham, talking about sexy courses earlier as well, and you just mentioned doing a course where you know, maybe you feel like you've learned nothing, but that is the course that gives you the qualification. Yeah. So, you know, there is a case for going on, you know, doing them courses because you get the tick in the box, but also doing, as you know, Pelham described, the sexy courses because that keeps you motivated. Coupling the two together is, you know, I'm doing that because I want the tick in the box, but I'm doing that for me because I want to progress in that area. It's not going to win me jobs. But I feel I need to do that. It's a, it's a bucket list course and it's going to keep me motivated on the path that I'm going. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. Well, uh, we, we've really run the gamut of uh, sexy to mundane. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to talk about it. But, you know, this topic comes up time and time again at the Circuit Magazine events in, you know, as part of the Circuit Magazine, what to learn, how to learn, what to learn. It's a perennial topic. And it has direct impact on people that often have limited budgets. And so it's worthwhile. Um, well, this is, this is a great look at uh, training and development with Sean Colsey. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, and uh, from Sean West and myself, we're looking forward to welcoming you to another Circuit Magazine event. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. All right. Nice to Good see job. you. really good point you know training is not just to get a job it's also for you as an individual and um, i'm here with john moss again and you know i think 
this episode, above many other episodes, captures something that every EP operator will go through, you know, in their minds at some stage um, in their career. What, what do you think, John? Yeah, it's a classic evergreen interview, I think. And the information in it will be as valuable, you know, to somebody starting their career as somebody who's already well established. But what it does do is it highlights that the factors for choosing a course might be very different to you as somebody who is just about to launch yourself into a career as opposed to somebody who is already well established. You know, there might be more freedom and flexibility of choice, whereas in those early days, you quickly want to rack up the courses that are going to count just to ticking the boxes on the uh, job vacancy spec, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's that's something Sean C, because of course we got two Sean's, uh, Sean W, Sean C, uh, you know, was 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 alluding to. If you are someone, you know, new new in your career, yeah, you're going to be doing that. You're going to be getting the CPD points. You're going to be getting enough to get your license. But if you are a little further along, yeah, you might be doing uncharted territory. You might try and do an MBA because you don't have any business experience or maybe not business for yourself. Or maybe there'll be something that you need to kind of position yourself to become the owner of a new agency or a new business, a new risk management consultancy. It really does depend. Plus, you know, I think that 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 very important distinction, people do they give people who do courses that are on the more sexy side a hard time. They say, when will you do Arctic evasive driving? Well, maybe you'll never do that, but it keeps you motivated. And I think that's a positive takeaway. Yeah, you, you need to be motivated. You need to find your source of motivation. And that's going to be in different places for different people. And if you've got the luxury of having already ticked the main boxes you need to, and you want to invest some of your training budget and time, because, you know, for a lot of us, it's the time that is more valuable than the actual cash investment on getting a place in the course. If you can make that commitment on something, you know, that's less essential for your career development, but it's keeping you engaged and enthused and you've just spent seven to 10 days away in the Middle East or in Asia or, you know, somewhere else that's different, more exotic, then great. Kudos to you. You'll get a lot out of that. And, you know, the other thing that I really enjoyed about this episode, and and I'm really happy that we've got it in the podcast, is that now, you know, we get a lot of questions about training, probably more questions about training than we do anything else in our communities, in the NABA Protector community and then the BBA Connect community. And so we're forever answering these types of questions. How should I spend my money? Where? What should I invest in? We've focused a lot on establishing a niche or a niche and the benefits of doing that, of being very a, a very specific operator in a very specific area. And it'll, it'll be great to be able to point people towards this episode now full of uh, rich, valuable, evergreen information and advice. And uh, yeah, I think I think we are going to be listening back to it um, 
again and again, um, which which can only be a good thing. And 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 you're right on the protector app, the BBA Connect app. The question is, what about a training provider? I mean, in fact, there was something on one of the apps uh, earlier this week and said, I, I want to know about online training courses that are good for the industry. And I mean, immediately that <laughs> a few things came out and then there was a bit of a consensus about what people felt. Now, I won't prejudice it. You know, it, it, there was there was a difference of opinion. People like this one, people like that one. But it was really good to see the community come together. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wanted to cover at the end of today's show, and this is a kind of nice segue into it, the event that we ran last week, which was the Protected Mobility Forum. And it was fantastic. I have to say, of all the online virtual events that I've attended or been part of, this was up there as one of the best. It was really, really engaging. And we tried to do some uh, something a bit different in that event by having panelists and advice given at the same time as we were running live action in the background. And as anybody who was at the event can attest to, you know, it was a fantastic day. Everyone enjoyed that. All of the feedback that I heard was really, really pro, you know, doing this kind of training. Being on that forum and hearing all of that great advice on the subject has left a taste. I have to say I've added Joe Otera's Vehicle Dynamics Institute course to my own professional bucket list of, of courses that I want to do. That one is well and truly in there now. And I, and I might not have known that. I might not of getting a taste for that if I hadn't have been on that event. It was good, wasn't it? It was it was very appealing. I, I want to go. Um, I want to go now. And, and, and not only do we know that he knows what he's talking about, he has a community of people that will help out and, and help advise. We had our, our colleague, um, Glenn Edmonds in, in Kenya, um, who, who, you know, partners with him. And, and to have that vehicle test track and to see the, you know, dramatic breaking scenes in in the background it, it, it was great so hopefully you'll be able to get out to the vdi um as as well and uh, and it reminds me do you remember when we were talking to simeon rosette from the rosette butler school um sean uh, west was saying you know the relationship with the butler at 2 a.m in the morning you know is, is really really key and the worst thing is if you get off on the wrong footing with one one of these other functions and the driver equally is one of those other functions. You can't you can't expect the driver to be something other than a driver because they're under so much pressure. And and that training, I don't think would go amiss for more people to do. Absolutely, yeah. You know when we ran a poll after that event that Simeon was part of, and I asked the question in that uh, to the BBA community as to who they thought the most important person in the principles in a circle was that was going to be most uh, effective for them to build a strong relationship with. And I don't remember exactly where they all placed, but I know from a lot of people's experience, they placed the driver as being that primary candidate for building the relationship with. So it, it do, does go to show. It does. It does. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, please keep uh, your comments coming on the uh, NABA app, uh, you know, the Protector app and the BBA app, because, you know, the community is there, community is engaging and, and we're always there to help. In, in terms of 
things coming up. I'd like people to be aware that on the 25th of June, I've got the second Executive Office Risk Management Forum, which looks at the entire Royal Court, uh, Butler and uh, Wealth Manager alike, all the way uh, to to EP colleagues. We've got some interesting uh, colleagues that, that you might see uh, you know, quite, quite heavily featuring on the clubhouse uh, at the moment. For example, uh, Monica Duperre and Rodriguez is very kindly a panelist. I'll, that's just a sneak preview. And, and of course, Simeon Rosset is, is, is there too. So uh, just in case people, people want to get that angle. Um, Fantastic. What, I highly recommend that to anybody who is either in or looking to move into the whole executive corporate protection area. They'll get so much out of these type of events. I love it. Well, what have, what have we got uh, coming up uh, that we want people to take note of? Well, we mentioned the protected mobility event. And while it was really well attended, I'm sure there was lots of people who, you know, for one reason or another, weren't able to attend on the day. And hearing us talk about it will have only wet their appetite as to, you know, what it was all about and what they've missed out on. And so we will be getting the videos up into both communities very soon in the very near future. So look out for that. The whole uh, replay of the event will be up and that'll be uh, free to watch to all members. I love it. I love it. Well, we'll keep that content coming and we'll keep uh, getting engaged with the magazine and the apps. And uh, yeah, the topic of training, not going to go away. And uh, thank you very much for Nerva Elite and Shodel Kongsi for being such a great interviewer today. Uh, We're going to have to revisit the topic. It's continually evolving, but I hope people will spend their hard-earned money, be it whatever currency, in in, in a slightly more targeted fashion. Um, From John and myself, thank you very much for listening. This has been another excellent edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.